Most of you will know that on Saturday the 6th of February at Westminster Abbey in London, a nationally significant event is going to take place. Charles, who became king immediately on his mother's death, is going to be publicly enthroned as King Charles III. It's going to be a very historic, traditional type of event, steeped in hundreds of years of this is how we've always done it. And it will see him make promises. It will see him be anointed with oil. He'll have the famous crown placed on his head. And then he'll move from the enthronement chair to the throne, where he'll sit for a time. Now, I say all that to make this point. There have been many kings, but there is one king. There have been many kingdoms, but there is one kingdom. Many have sat on thrones, but one sits on the throne. And God's kingdom is past, it's present, and it's future. There's never been a second there's never been a moment, there's never been anything when God wasn't king. He's king now. And there's nothing in this universe, not a square inch, not a single cell over which he is not king. And he is going to be king for as long as you live. And he's going to be king for as long as this earth keeps going. And he is going to be king forever and ever and ever in his future kingdom. Now Paul, who was a New Testament, an author of many of the New Testament letters, and an apostle, wrote two letters to a guy called Timothy, who he'd sent to deputize, as it were, for him. And in around AD 60-something, he wrote his second of two letters to Timothy, and Paul, at that point, had the future, the future kingdom of God, very much in his mind. Because he was acutely aware that the end was very near for him. He was very soon, we don't know if it was days, weeks, months, but he was very soon going to be beheaded, executed by order of the Roman Emperor Nero. So one writer says of this letter, the second letter to Timothy, possibly no other of the New Testament letters makes so tender an appeal to Timothy. Every paragraph is suffused with emotion. Every sentence throbs with the beat of a human heart. Paul, the dauntless missionary hero, the founder of the church in both Asia Minor and in Europe, is now an aged prisoner in Rome, suffering, deserted, condemned, and soon to be led forth to a cruel death. And towards the end of this second letter, we read these words, which are full of feeling. Paul says to Timothy, For I am already being poured out like a drink offering, and the time for my departure is near. Famous words coming up. Many of you will know I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. Now there is in store for me 
the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day. And not only to me, but also to all who have longed for his appearing. Down a bit further, at my first defense, no one came to my support, but everyone deserted me. May it not be held against them. But the Lord stood at my side and gave me strength, so that through me the message might be fully proclaimed and all the Gentiles might hear it. And I was delivered from the lion's mouth. The Lord will rescue me from every evil attack and will bring me safely to his heavenly kingdom. To him be glory forever and ever. Amen. Amen. In verse 18, right at the end there, Paul says two things that we're going to focus on. The Lord, firstly, the Lord will rescue me from every evil attack or every evil deed. And the Lord will bring me safely to his heavenly kingdom. So firstly, the Lord will rescue me from every evil attack or every evil deed, Paul says. He's languishing in a small, dark, damp cell in Rome, awaiting execution. He said in verse 6, the time for my departure is near. He means his death. And he's giving in this letter a final written charge to what he calls his son in the faith. He's also saying to Timothy, get here quickly. In other parts of this letter, I don't have long left. I'm about to be executed. Get here quickly. Bring me some parchments. Bring me a warm cloak. I'm freezing. Get here quickly. There's not long left. And in this letter, he's been recounting, along with many other things, he's been recounting some of the many challenges he's faced. He says things like this. I am suffering for the gospel. I am suffering even to the point of being chained like a criminal. Everyone, he says, in the province of Asia has deserted me. He speaks of endurance, of persecutions and sufferings. So the thinking person has to wonder, Paul, what do you mean by saying the Lord will rescue me from every evil deed? He's just recounted some of the evil deeds that he's been subjected to. He's not been spared them at all, and he's He's completely anticipating a final evil deed, his execution. What do you mean the Lord will rescue me from every evil attack? And then you go back to one of his other letters and you get the most extraordinary catalogue of his sufferings. Let me read it to you. It's almost comical, except that it's not meant to be. He says in 2 Corinthians, I have worked much harder, been in prison more frequently, been flogged more severely and been exposed to death again and again. Five times I received from the Jews the 40 lashes minus one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was pelted with stones. Three times I was shipwrecked. I spent a night and a day in the open sea. I've been constantly on the move. I've been in danger from rivers, in danger from bandits, in danger from my fellow Jews, in danger from Gentiles, in danger in the city, in danger in the country countryside, in danger at sea, in danger from false believers. I've labored and toiled and have often gone without sleep. I've known hunger and thirst and have often gone without food. I've been cold and naked. (sighs) Besides everything else, I face daily the pressure of my concern for all the churches. Who is weak and I do not feel weak? Who is led into sin and I do not inwardly burn? 
There's a lot of evil attacking there. There's a lot of evil intent against his life. And then he gets to this letter to Timothy and says, The Lord will deliver me from every evil deed. Paul, it doesn't look like it. (laughs) It looks like you have been spared nothing. What is he talking about? Well, verse 17 helps us. Verse 17 comes just before that statement. I think putting things together, what he's saying is things like this. I will be rescued from every evil deed that is outside the evil permitted by the will of God. Now, there's a whole packet of mystery in there, but I'm just putting it out there. Evil will not be able to hinder the gospel's advance. That's part of what he means. And he particularly, I think, means this. I will be rescued by the power of God's presence as I pass through evil deeds. So verse 17 has told us, the Lord stood at my side and gave me strength. You see, the Lord has rescued me and the Lord will rescue me from or through every evil deed. Paul has not got some crazy theology that simply says, nothing bad can happen to me because I am a child of God. It reminds me, of some words in Isaiah chapter 43. The prophet says this, when you pass through the waters, I will be with you. When will he be with us? When you pass through the waters. And when you pass through the rivers, they will not sweep over you. When you walk through the fire, you will not be burned. It seems pretty clear to me from the whole of Scripture, from Paul's life, and from what Paul intends here in verse 17 to be saying this, the Lord will rescue me from every evil deed, not in the sense of having some weird protection zone around him, but that God is still in charge and he will deliver and be with me and never leave my side through every evil deed that comes within the will of God on me. Something like that. You see, Paul lived with, just as we do, a dual reality. The presence of God's reign and the presence of evil. The presence of evil does not dismiss the reign of God. And the reign of God in this age does not yet banish finally every evil intent. You see, to be a follower of Jesus is to enjoy the fact that God is king and that he reigns globally and personally. If there's one thing that being a Christian should be, it's this. There's a king and I am his, and he is mine, and I am safe forever with him, and whatever else is going on, that is going to bring me joy. Friends, there's a king. If you're a Christian today, you have a king. You have the king, not just any king, not a temporary one, not a half-baked one. The king is your king. What a joy to be a Christian. What a joy to be in his kingdom, to know that he is reigning over every single thing that's going on. Every question you've got, he is God over it. Every circumstance that's going on around the world, and you think, what? That's out of control. Yes, it looks like it, but there is one who's in control of the bigger picture. And every personal detail that's going on. 
every joy, every challenge, every difficulty, everything you wish was not in your life, there is mystery in it, but there is certainty, a bigger certainty than the mystery. And the certainty is this, that you are in his hand, that the Lord is your shepherd that he will lead you by still waters in his presence. And that even when you walk through the darkest valley, you need not fear because he is with you. Exactly the same as what Paul is saying here. To be a follower of Jesus does not make me immune from the onslaught of the world, the flesh, and the devil. If you've uh, seen the magnificent film, The Incredibles, which is incredible, you'll know that Violet, one of the children has, because they all have superpowers, and one of Violet's superpowers is that she can produce a force field around her. And there's one scene where the enemy is coming at her in the jungle, and uh, they're all being shot at by, I don't know, I can't remember, but anyway, they're being shot at and they're being chased And the family all get together, and it looks like they're doomed. So suddenly Violet produces this force field around her, and the enemy cannot get her, after all. The Christian is completely safe in the hand of God, but doesn't, if you like, have a force field. I've heard of people praying over their car, I pray the blood of Jesus over this car. And I don't mean to mock, but there is not a magic force field around the Christian that will protect you from harm any more than Paul was protected from harm. And yet he can say, the Lord will deliver me from every evil attack. He is with me. He's been with me at every step. He'll be with me at every step. And no doubt God did deliver Paul from all sorts of things that he never had to experience. But he is absolutely sure that the presence of the world, the flesh, and the devil do not dismiss the presence and wonderful power of God in our lives. So long as God gives us breath, life is beautiful. And life is sometimes a battering. Life is wonderful. Life can be very wearying. But the Lord will stand at my side and give me strength because he reigns. And his reign is experienced in remarkable outbreaks of his power and through his power being made known in me when I go through difficulties. Both are true. Praise his name. That it's not just the Christian who knows extraordinary deliverance who can rejoice in God's presence. It's the Christian going right through it who can equally rejoice. No, God is with me and he will deliver me. Praise God for that. And secondly, the Lord will bring me safely to his heavenly kingdom. So Paul is very much aware of his sufferings. But I reckon he is more aware of his destiny. The final goal of the salvation that Jesus has won for us will be found beyond death. And so Paul knows that even being beheaded cannot finally endanger him. Life 
Life in God has a glorious destination. He calls it his heavenly kingdom. Paul may be about to lose his head, but he is not going to lose his crown. Now there is in store for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day. Just as the kingdom of God is present, in a very important sense, the kingdom of God is not yet fully present. The Lord, he says, will bring me safely to his heavenly kingdom. Paul is in the kingdom of God, is he not? He's in the kingdom of God, and yet he's also saying, the Lord will bring me safely to his heavenly kingdom. What's he saying? The kingdom is here and the kingdom is future. Praise God, we're not just people hanging on for the end of the world when, oh, thankfully Jesus will come back. We're not like that. We are people enjoying God here and now. We're enjoying his deliverance of us in all sorts of things. We're enjoying his forgiveness. We're enjoying his presence. We're enjoying his power. We're enjoying the fact there is a king who reigns and has got my life in his hands. The kingdom is here. And the kingdom is future. Paul in the kingdom is waiting to be delivered to the heavenly kingdom. The kingdom of God is future because death will deliver us from the evil deeds of the world, the flesh and the devil into the presence of God. That's what he's anticipating. And the kingdom of God is future because only when Jesus returns and renews all things will his enemies finally and absolutely and utterly be crushed for good. God will blow the final whistle and it'll be over. You see, Christians are future-oriented people. They look to the future heavenly kingdom with hope and anticipation. I wonder, are you, fut- you future-oriented? Are you awaiting Often talks in the the New Testament about anticipating. It's like being on tiptoes, it means. It's like, I wonder if I can see, is Jesus coming yet? I don't want to miss it. I remember taking taking my boys once to, Jackie had been to Zambia for a wedding, and uh, I took the boys up to, my three sons, up to Heathrow to pick her up. And it was like, they were, is she there? No, it's not her. (laughs) They were really anticipating. Christians are future-oriented people. They're anticipatory people because they know that though this is wonderful, there is greater yet to come that God has planned for us, the goal of our salvation. There are, I don't know if you saw in the news this week, there are major fears over artificial intelligence, AI. Did you see that? Massive concerns. I listened to a bit of a podcast yesterday, and some of them are absolutely terrified. These are scientists. On the BBC, it said this, key figures in artificial artificial intelligence want training of powerful AI systems to be suspended for six months at the moment amid fears of a threat to humanity. People are honestly, this isn't just warmongers and warriors, this is genuine. Scientists are genuinely concerned that if AI keeps developing at the rate it does, it will wipe out humanity. That's the theory. They've signed an open letter warning of potential risks and say the race to develop AI systems is out of control. 
AI systems with human competitive intelligence can pose profound risks to society and humanity. Looking down through time into the future, people are getting worried. While there may be cause for worry, but in a very different sense, Christians are confidently future-oriented people because life beyond this life is where we're headed. That's what you were saved for. It's what God is storing up for you. It's what Jesus has gone to ahead to prepare a place for us. It's not this life just, though he's with us, as we've said so powerfully and presently in this life, but it's beyond this life too. This doesn't mean that the past or the present are unimportant, but it means that this is what Jesus died and rose to win us. The full manifestation of God being king. Now, what is this heavenly kingdom that Paul is anticipating? Well, here's a a few things that it's not. It's not the vague, floaty, weird experience that you see in much Christian art. If you're a Christian artist, God bless you. That's wonderful. No problem at all. But the history of Christian art has given a very poor idea about what this heavenly kingdom is. Please don't believe too much of it. This heavenly kingdom is not just the best that you can imagine. I'm sure, that, I'm sure some of it will be what we can imagine. You might say, this world has beautiful views, beautiful mountains. I'm sure heaven will have even greater ones. Well, quite possibly. But don't restrict it to your best imaginings. And nor is this heavenly kingdom... Just going back to Eden. I've heard that mentioned a number of times over the years. We're going back to Eden. Eden restored. No, that's not what's going on. In Eden, don't forget, there was, that there was marriage. In heaven, there's no marriage. Why is there no marriage in heaven? Because there's no need for it anymore. It doesn't need to picture Christ and the church anymore. And there's no need for procreation. In Eden, there was marriage. In Eden, there was a snake. In Eden, there was temptation to sin. In the heavenly kingdom, there will be neither. So the story of the Christian faith is not going back round to Eden. It's moving on. And Eden is a picture, but it's not just going back there. What I think it is, is perhaps best envisioned by John's vision in Revelation. If you want to know, what's this heavenly kingdom like? I think this is bang on and the best way to look at it. John writes this. I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, it was loud, but I'll spare you. Look, God's dwelling place is now among the people and he will dwell with them. They will be his people and God himself will be with them and be their God. He will wipe every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain for the old order of things has passed away. Isn't that extraordinary? If you're a Christian here today, that's where you're heading. That's what Paul means by the heavenly kingdom that God will safely bring him into. This magnificent vision, the kingly reign of God is no longer challenged, but is perfectly expressed. The kingdom of God has fully and finally come. God's reign is unchallenged and unhindered by the total presence of God and the total absence of evil. 
It is beyond what you can imagine. It's way beyond. God's presence is so tangible. You seeing God face to face, seeing Jesus face to face, there is nothing in the way of you and God. There's no sin. There's no sadness. There's no mucking up. There's no temptation. There's no guilt. There's no shame. We know there's none now, but there's none felt then. There's no condemnation felt then. There's nothing in the way. Can you imagine it? How extraordinary to have the presence of, and I'm describing it very poorly, nothing hindering the presence of God and the absence of every big and little bit of evil. Nothing to pain you. Nothing to bring you down. So while in this life we taste something of heaven on earth, what is heaven? Well, it's where God is. Do we experience something of God being with us? Absolutely, in this life. That life will be, verse 1 of Revelation 21, a new heaven and a new earth, or the new heavens on the new earth. What's that mean? Well, heaven is where God is. God is with his people, it says. Heaven on earth. You ever wanted to walk around in heaven and bring heaven to earth? Some of us pray like that. Lord, more of heaven here on earth. Let me tell you, that is exactly where you're heading. Heaven, the perfect presence of God with us here on earth. So if life is wonderful here for you, remember, don't get too attached. It's not your destination. And if life is troubled now, remember there is far better to come. This is not your destination. This is not yet that. And it's important not to mistake this for that. It's a bit like saying to your five-year-old son, we're going to go on holiday to France this summer. And when you get on the journey, he mistakes the ferry for France. And he gets on the ferry and he thinks... Well, this is fun. There's some good bits. Oh, I feel a bit sick as well. It's not all fun and laughter, but I'm enjoying the views. There's a lot of good going on here. It's great on the journey, but the goal is France, not the ferry. Don't mistake this for that. Don't mistake the ferry for the journey. Love the journey. Long for the destination, the heavenly kingdom. But what is the ferry? What is the ferry? How will God bring us safely to his heavenly kingdom? He will bring us safely to his heavenly kingdom through Christ's return or through death, whichever comes first. That's how he will deliver us. That's how he will bring us safely to his heavenly kingdom. If he rescues you through Christ's return, if Christ comes before you die, that will be the first truly global event. People talk about global events. That will be the global event of all time. For everyone will see and everyone will hear and everyone will be affected in an instant. In that moment, all God's children will be safely taken to be with him and join those who've died before with him. 
Unbelievers will be judged. Believers will give an account. But if he rescues you through death, how will that be for the Christian? If he rescues you through death, instantly your spirit will be with Jesus, enjoying his presence and evil's absence. And when Jesus returns to gather those who still remain here and join with those who've already died, unbelievers will be judged, believers will give an account, and God will renew heaven and earth and give you a resurrection body that will never fade and never be ill and never suffer anymore again. Christian art does a very poor job of representing that. Your future, if you're a Christian, is extraordinary. It's utterly extraordinary. And he will safely bring us there, either through his return or through death, whichever comes first. Until then, we work and pray to bring as much of the future into the present as God will allow. We pray your kingdom come, your will be done on earth, on earth while we're here, on earth as it is perfectly done in heaven. Until the day when the new earth is the new heaven, the dwelling place of God. Here's a story to close with. It's of a boy whose parents owned one of the first telephones. They lived on, this is not a theological story, but it makes a helpful point. They lived on the plains in America and the wooden box with a handle, the phone box, was installed in their farmhouse kitchen. The boy thought it a wonderful machine. His mother would wind it up back in those days and say, information please. And the lady would reply, this is information. He said it was incredible. Information, please, would get you a number, tell you the time and even the weather. One day when he was in the house alone, he banged his thumb with a hammer. He said, there was no point crying because there was nobody in. And then I remembered the telephone. I got a stool out, stood on it, and reached up to the handset. Information, please, I said between sobs. The lady replied in her standard way. This is information. How can I help you? I've banged my thumb with a hammer, I said. Is your mummy in? Information, please ask. No. Is your daddy in? No. Is it bleeding? I turned, checked my thumb over. No. Information, please, said, can you get to the icebox? Yes. Hold some ice against it. It worked. After that, I rang information, please, for anything. Information, please, helped me with my geography homework. She told me where Philadelphia was. Information, please, taught me to spell disappear. And when my pet canary died and I cried down the phone and said, why would God make something so beautiful and let it die? Information, please, said, Paul, you must always remember there are other worlds to sing in. It's not a theology about the death of canaries. 
and their destiny, but it's making an interesting point. And then, as you'll see, and then when I was nine, my parents moved to Boston. I missed my mentor terribly. Information, please, belonged in that old wooden box back at home, and I don't believe, didn't believe she could live in the new plastic phone we had now. Yet as I grew into my teens, the memories of those childhood conversations never left me. Often in moments of doubt or confusion, I would recall the wonderful sense of security I had when I knew I could call information, please, and get the right answer. I appreciated now how very patient, kind, and understanding she'd been. I'd never rung her again until I was 24 years old. I was making a trip one day, and my plane put down in an airport near where we used to live. I had about half an hour to wait and was sitting in the airport lounge when I saw a telephone. I thought, I wonder. I dialed my old hometown operator and said, information, please. Miraculously, I heard again the voice I knew so well. This is information. I asked, could you teach me to spell disappear? There was a long pause, and then she replied, I expect the thumb is better now. <laughs> I, said, I said, you have no idea what you meant to me. And she said, you no idea what you meant to me. We never had children, and I so look forward to your calls. I asked her if I could call again when I came back to the area. Please do, she said, just ask for Sally. After that, I rang Sally whenever I was in the area, and we would talk. One day... So I dialed a number and a different voice answered, this is information. I asked for Sally. Are you a friend? The woman said. Yes, I replied, an old friend. There was a pause and the operator said, I'm so sorry to have to tell you that Sally died five weeks ago. Before I could thank her and hang up, she said, wait a minute, did you say your name was Villard? was his name. Yes. Well, Sally left a message for you. She said that if you happen to ring any time in the future, we, we must be sure to give you this message. Here's the message. Paul, you must always remember there are other worlds to sing in. Folks, there is another world to sing in. There is another world to dance in. There is another world to rejoice in. There is another world where God's presence is so tangible and always there equally. There's another world where sin and sickness and evil and the world and the flesh and the devil will never touch you. That's our destiny. That's the future kingdom. That's the kingdom that Paul was so confident God would safely bring him to and he will bring you there as well through his return or safely through your death. If you're not a Christian here today, it's lovely to have you here genuinely. My plea with you is to make sure you too will be safely brought to the heavenly kingdom because there is another world to sing in. Isn't God amazing? Isn't the victory of Jesus astonishing? Isn't it a privilege and a wonder to be a child of God? To love him now and have him so close in the future kingdom. Here's what I'd like to do. I'd like to go back to the first point first and pray for all who feel like evil is attacking 
Or you might say the world or the flesh or the devil are assailing you. And I'd like us to, together to pray for you. That your testimony might be like Paul. The Lord has delivered me and he keeps delivering me and he'll always deliver me. You might be facing extraordinary difficulty and I would love for this community of people to stand with you and pray with you today. So I'm just going to ask if you know that's true of you, that you are facing battle after battle after battle, would you just please stand? I wonder if you'd be brave enough to do that. There's got to be a whole bunch of us. By the way, this does not necessarily mean you're getting anything wrong. Paul went through battle after battle after battle. And that's part of life in this world. Are there any others? Because I'm going to ask in a moment just for a few people to get around and pray for you. And say, God, strengthen by your presence in the middle of this. Tell you what, I'm just going to wait, I'm going to wait 30 seconds because I reckon there must be a bunch. This is so we can support you, not to single you out. God cares massively about your situation. I wonder if somebody near each of these people could just reach out a hand and put it on them. It's like a way of saying we're here with you. And God is here with you. Don't ask anything. Don't say anything. You're a physical expression of God's presence. There are some people, I'm not sure I've got anybody who's saying that to them this morning. Can you just have a quick look around? If somebody hasn't got a hand on them, a representation of God's presence with them, just find them and put a hand on them. Lord, we thank you that you are just as really present with these people as those who are having a bundle of laughs at the minute. We thank you for a bundle of laughs. We thank you for your presence in that. We thank you for your presence in trouble. We thank you that Paul's testimony was through his whole catalogue of trials that you had never left him, that you'd never forsaken, that you couldn't even do that because you are faithful. You are Emmanuel, God with us. And so, Lord, we do pray for deliverance out of this. But for as long as you allow this, we pray for strength. The strengthening comfort and power of God that Paul wrote about. We pray it. I pray for a supernatural experience. If this carries on, well, God was with me. It was extraordinary. We thank you, Lord, for that miracle as well as the miracle of escape out of. We pray, Lord, work your power, work your miracles, do your thing in each of these people's lives. We pray, Lord, that as long as the world, the flesh and the devil are assailing them, they will know God is with me very, very powerfully. We thank you that that is true in Jesus' magnificent name. Amen. And we were going to sing. I'm not sure we could stop this without a song. I'll tell you why. Because it feels like 
Are you not a little bit excited about the heavenly kingdom? Okay, a little. Well, I think we've got to sing a song. We've got to do something to give an outlet to this extraordinary joy about our heavenly future kingdom. Amen? Okay, let's stand and we'll sing.